Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This is a government that has been defined by Brexit and COVID, and it's been a week in which the news has been dominated by Brexit and COVID. The government might well want to move on from the pandemic, but it does need to look back too. This week brought a highly critical joint report by two House of Commons select committees, and they set out the failures in the government's handling of the pandemic, failures of decision-making, of delivery, and of the use of expert advice. Failures which the IFG has been flagging for some time, as well as successes of vaccination, we should say, too. So we're going to take a look at all that. Brexit is back in the news, too, and all the brinksmanship with Brussels that we're going to expect. We're going to discuss what the UK wants, what the EU wants, and where this might end up. To discuss all this, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by IFG Senior Fellow Jill Rutter. Great to see you again. Good morning. I'm delighted to be joined as well by Adam Payne, Senior Correspondent at Politics Home. Hi, Adam. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm I'm still standing just about. I'm one of the sort of 50% of people who seem to have caught this incredibly... Uh, powerful cold in the last few weeks but the super cold yeah yeah is that what it's been dubbed uh yeah so I'm, I'm very well thank you great well you really immersed yourself in the brexit sagas of the last parliament so i'm really looking forward to hearing what you've got to say on this well let's start with brexit and turn our attention to the story which before the pandemic hit was really dominating politics and a great deal of our work at the ifg Brexit is back and both sides are wrestling to try to find a deal over the controversy in Northern Ireland. And we're going to be joined now for this section by Joe Marshall, senior researcher on our Brexit team. Hi, Joe. Hi, Bronwyn. Great. Well, Joe, take us into it really simply and succinctly, if that is possible to do with things Brexit. what, What is going on? So all of this concerns the Northern Ireland Protocol, as you said, Bronwyn, that part of the divorce deal that's trying to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. And it did that by keeping Northern Ireland aligned with many EU rules on goods. The problem is that the UK government doesn't think it's working very well. It's making it too difficult to trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and risk destabilising the peace process. And that's before a lot of the protocol has actually been fully implemented. And this sort of current position is unsustainable, creating a lot of uncertainty for Northern Ireland. So over the summer, the UK government set out some proposals to effectively rewrite large parts of the protocol, and even went as far as saying it was willing to suspend bits of the protocol if it couldn't reach agreement with the EU. Yesterday, we saw the EU's response, and it didn't pitch it as a formal response to the UK government, but said these were measures it was considering to help the people of Northern Ireland. But it basically covered four areas of disagreement. Uh, including those that risk causing some of the most disruption on the ground, things like customs paperwork, on agri-food goods, rules on medicines, and the role of Northern Ireland institutions. And we did see some real movement from the EU. It's gone further than it has before in these areas. It sort of provides a basis for more discussions that are going to carry on between the UK and the EU now, but don't go as far perhaps as some people thought it might do over the last few days. And I think the big issue is probably what the EU proposals didn't cover. The UK government said that a key sticking point over the Northern Ireland Protocol is the role of the European Court of Justice in overseeing EU law that applies in Northern Ireland. Now, that's a red line for the EU, so it's likely to be a big sticking point in these talks that are going on at the moment. And it really will come down to sort of whether or not the UK government is willing to sort of hold out on that ECJ issue, even if that means not resolving some of the other practical problems where a solution might be found. Joe, thanks for that. So, Jill, do you reckon there's the makings of a new deal? I think it really depends because this discussion is going on, if you like, on two levels. On one level, and I thought uh, Mara Sushkovich was making very clear, is 
the practical concerns of Northern Ireland businesses about how to make the protocol less onerous. And there the EU does seem to have come up with a package that would quite significantly reduce the burdens of the protocol, though in the process rather underlined how onerous it was to operate now, sort of, which I think David Frost probably would regard as a bit of a justification of the line he's been taking. And I think there's probably some more rooms to negotiate on some of those, because interestingly, where the EU has been prepared to go now were areas where the EU said it was non-negotiable in the past. So if they really are going to have intensive talks on those, you can imagine that those intensive talks might move both sides off their positions and could come up with a pragmatic deal on practicalities. I think the interesting thing, though, and is... The issue that's a big issue for politicians in the UK and politicians in Northern Ireland, the unionist politicians, which are these issues of principle. And Joe mentioned this big issue about the European court, the issue as well about Northern Ireland having rules applied to it that it has no say in. The EU moved a bit on consultations there. It can't really offer much more on that. But I I think we have to see, and what we don't really know is whether there's any give from the EU side and whether there's any give on the UK side. It's quite notable in his Lisbon speech, I thought, that David Frost said that the final decisions, the ultimate decisions, couldn't be made by the European Court of Justice. That possibly opens the way for something where the European Court is part of a process with an arbitration panel. It will tell people what EU law means, but the final decisions about the implications of any breach of EU law come back to a more conventional international trade dispute arbitration process. And that might be, some people have been talking about Swiss style arrangements, might be where it's possible to go. But I think you would say, based on where where we are now, that if they really do negotiate intensively, you could see that there is some scope for an agreement to be done And unless the UK really does want to be in a state of permanent sort of warfare with the EU, it really ought to want a deal to be done on this. Well, thank you for that. As you said, quite a lot of movement, including from the EU, particularly by the EU, on the practicalities. But we've still got there this issue that is very ideological for parts of the Conservative Party about the European Court of Justice having a role in this. Adam, what's your take on this? Who do you think has moved most and why didn't they do this in the first place? Well, I think I agree with the comments already made uh, in the sense that the UK government, my impression is, was surprised by the size of the concessions offered by the European Union. Obviously, the what the EU is offering is to reduce checks on food by, according to its own sums, by 80%. It wants to scale back customs procedures by 50%. You know, these are really major concessions that EU is willing to make. That bit looks like a victory for the UK in these negotiations. It was certainly more than what the government was expecting. And, you know, I've, I've sort of read and heard voices online saying it's sort of a vindication of the, some would say, aggressive strategy deployed by Lord Frost. O- on the question of why the European Union didn't make this available prior to the protocol coming into effect, one of, one of the reasons at least the European Union puts across is that one thing it's been able to get hold of recently is access to UK data and what is actually crossing the Irish Sea, what is actually moving from GB to NI. One reoccurring complaint from the EU is that the UK has not been transparent enough. It's not handed over 
information and live sort of live data that it agreed to hand over. My understanding is the EU has got hold of more information in the last few weeks, and that's why, at least partly, it feels like it's in more of a position to make these sort of concessions. I agree with the general sort of consensus there is a deal to be done, although the language around the ECJ from both sides seems to be pretty firm and and rigid. I think there's room for um, compromise there. Um, The reason the EU, probably worth saying, the reason the EU in its proposals outlined this week didn't address the ECJ or at least didn't offer something on the ECJ is that its argument is when it meets stakeholders, business groups, civil groups in Northern Ireland, what comes up every time is how trade is being affected, how businesses are being affected, and that the role of the ECJ very rarely comes up. And that's why it doesn't want, it doesn't feel like it's necessary to address the ECJ in these proposals. But clearly the two sides, we're entering a period of intense negotiations now. Both sides want to get something wrapped up by the new year. I think we're very much looking at another Christmas flurry um, of activity, perhaps another Christmas Eve deal, God forbid. To come back to your original question, I think the EU offer was was significant, and and I think clearly both sides feel there is there is a deal to be done. Thank you very much for that. A really interesting point you put about how even the um, the ECJ and these more ideological points could be in movement. Joe, do you think either side really understood the implications of the protocol when it was signed in the beginning? Because this is not very long, as the EU has kept pointing out, since it was signed, um, and yet we're looking at really pretty substantial changes. I think that is a very interesting question. I think on the UK side, it really sort of depends on whose argument you agree with. Lord Frost and the government sort of take the view that we always knew the protocol was going to be difficult in practice, but we went into it in good faith and we've tried to make it work. But ultimately, these sort of unforeseen issues arose that meant it was very difficult. More cynical argument is that actually the UK government sort of went into this always wanting to renegotiate and reopen it. That was sort of backed up by some of the tweets we've seen this week from Dominic Cummings. And I think there was a, a sense there that actually some of these issues were probably foreseen. They were sort of the inevitable consequence. Sort of the role of the ECJ was sort of well defined before the protocol came into effect. You know, some of the, the checks and what it would require were, were well developed. And also, I think it's quite interesting that, you know, some of the things the UK government has been asking for more recently, as far as we know, it didn't ask for, at least publicly in the past when it was negotiating before. So I think there is a bit of a, a sense there, you know, the reality is probably somewhere in between where, you know, it was hastily negotiated, the politics were very difficult at the time, but I think there's also a, a slight sense of sort of revisionism about exactly what happened and, and what went on. And who was thinking what, when? I agree, yeah. that's very difficult to establish even at the time. Jill, this role of Dominic Cummings, he's back this week, uh, tweeting all kinds of things, including saying the plan, um, the original plan, the British plan, had been to ditch the bits we didn't like after winning power. You think that's right? I think that the Dominic Cummings intervention isn't too much of a surprise. Clearly, his absolute priority was to get Brexit done. And we had heard stories that when the parliamentary bill passed that meant that the government basically had to go back to Parliament if it didn't have a deal. So ruling no deal out, his view was almost any deal will do and don't look at it too closely. So that does sort of square there, whether the Prime Minister really went into this thinking, I will ditch it as soon as it's passed, I'll ditch it after Christmas. Who knows? Uh, I do think the Cummings intervention here 
don't know whether this was coordinated with David Frost, whether they're still speaking a lot. David Frost was quite closely aligned with the former vote leave uh, cabal in number 10. But it did really sort of immediately undermine that line in David Frost's Lisbon speech about we're being accused of doing things in bad faith that we can't be trusted. This is all very unfair. And then Dominic Cummings did sort of confirm everybody's worst fears about the way the UK was treating this. But I do think there's quite an interesting point as well about whether the EU has been surprised by the implications of the protocol. Certainly when we've been talking to commission officials who are taking an incredibly hard line on the I remember having a discussion with the commission official about a lorry driver going from Scotland to Northern Ireland and having a sandwich in their cab that it was you know as right for the sandwich to be impounded at the Northern Irish border as it was at the Dutch border and I'm not sure that the commission really thought through the implications of putting what ended up being a very very hard border between Great Britain and the EU and putting it into an economy that's as integrated as the GB and Northern Ireland economy. And actually, I think they probably, uh, one of the motivations behind this package is, I think they came to recognise that although their focus very much uh, until they negotiated the protocol was on north-south trade, preserving that uh, ability of goods to circulate freely within the island of Ireland. They hadn't actually completely thought through the implications, the sort of border they were putting in place in the Irish Sea. And really, as you said, really what that would look like in, in practice and just how disruptive and how stressful to, to peace on that island. And, act- and actually how badly, in some senses, it sort of would reflect on the deal that had been done. I mean, it was, you know, the commission purists were actually inflicting quite considerable pain on things. That's why I think, you know, it's quite interesting now, though, that the commission is now positioning itself very much as the friend of Northern Ireland business, cutting out the politicians in Northern Ireland very, very notably, but now saying we are going over, we're taking those concerns on board. Very interestingly mentioned that the ECJ wasn't raised because it wasn't a concern of Northern Ireland businesses. But when Marisevkovic was asked about why they hadn't made any moves on pets and pet passports, he said, well, businesses aren't complaining about pets either. But that is a concern, to, I think, to some citizens, both in uh, in Great Britain and in Northern Ireland, who will take their pets over to Northern Ireland with them. So maybe they'll have to move on that as well. But I think they have placed themselves on the side of business. Yeah, and they've come to realise, as you said, exactly what this means. Whereas perhaps at the beginning, there was a bit of a sense of, look, this is all the consequence of Brexit. It's your fault, the UK, and you've got to live with it. Even And, and if there's disruption in Northern Ireland or on the island of Ireland, that's your fault. Adam, what do you make of the comments by Gavin Barwell, who was Theresa May's chief of staff, during a really painful attempts to secure a Brexit deal? He accused David Frost of trashing the deal he negotiated and hailed as a triumph, and worse now, using it to further undermine our relationship with some of our closest friends in an increasingly dangerous world. You think that's fair? Well, it was, it was a very strongly worded statement, wasn't it? I think what, what I was going to say in relation to Gavin Barwell's uh, remarks, and indeed just rewinding very slightly to Dominic Cummings, is that because the, the Dominic Cummings tweets, which I found myself uh, involved in sort of briefly, what I'd say is that I spoke to someone yesterday who served in government at, at around that time, late 2019, 
who pretty much corroborated the Cummings account and said that the feeling, at least within government, was let's just get this deal through, suck it up, I think was their words, and then we will change it next year once the dust has settled on the craziness of late 2019. And and indeed, I think it was Ian Paisley Jr., was it, who on Newsnight last night claimed that Boris Johnson committed to him in person to scrapping the protocol and seeking an entirely new one. So although Dominic Cummings, obviously, one has to take everything he says and tweets with quite a generous amount of salt. My impression that I've got from conversations I've had over the last few days is that there was a feeling within Downing Street that we can change this. We're not going to, in the long term, settle for what we've negotiated to get Brexit done. And also, just coming back to the question of did the EU foresee the issues which have arisen since the protocol came into effect. When I attended the briefing yesterday, the EU did a technical briefing on its proposals for journalists both in Brussels and back in London and elsewhere. And one thing they admitted was that while some of the effects of Brexit we're seeing play out indeed at the Irish sea border, but also GBEU are direct consequences of the sort of Brexit pursued by Boris Johnson that in regards to the protocol, there are unintended consequences that the EU didn't think clearly were going to happen when when they put that text um, together. That's an important distinction. Joe, is this going to do anything about empty shelves or just in Northern Ireland? I think it's sort of difficult to really draw two direct links between them. I think you know, the, the empty shelves issue, you know, there is a Brexit dimension, particularly around labour and shortage of labour in Great Britain, you know, but the empty shelf shortages problems are also caused by COVID and sort of wider economic, long-term economic issues and sort of global problems as well. I suppose one thing that people have pointed out is that some of the shortages and issues that have happened in Great Britain do not seem to have happened in Northern Ireland. And some people are putting that down to the fact that Northern Ireland still has frictionless access to the EU single market. But I think there are also lots of other things that make Northern Ireland quite different and distinct that could be explaining some of that as well. So I think it's easy to try and draw Brexit lines there, but they're not necessarily that clear. But Brexit is definitely playing a part in the sort of supply disruption we've seen. And the government has been quite reluctant to accept that. Um, But I think it is a part of the picture and one that should really be acknowledged, particularly when looking to think about what the solutions can be and what levers the government can now pull post-Brexit to try and resolve some of those issues. And Jill, uh, will Boris Johnson ever be able to say that Brexit is done? Well, the interesting question is, does he want to be able to say that Brexit Mm. is done? Because clearly a critical part of his coalition that he established back in 2019 to win his 80-seat majority was that he managed to consolidate the Leave vote behind him. And he may want to continually sort of, if you like, poke a stick at the Labour opposition saying that they want to undo Brexit. We saw that immediately when Keir Starmer said that the answer to the HGV driver shortage wasn't 5,000 visas, it was 100,000 visas. And immediately Boris Johnson was on the case saying he wants to reintroduce freedom of movement and move backwards. So I think as long as it's politically convenient, he will always want to go back and remind people that he is the person that got Brexit done. Though, of course, if enough people come to the view that Brexit was a mistake, and there does seem to be quite a move in the polls there, even some softening now among former Leave voters thinking that Brexit's been handled badly, 
or that Brexit was a mistake, then he might be more reluctant to do that and blame other things. Well, he's going to need a deal if he's going to keep on claiming this. We'll have to see if we get Adam's Christmas Eve deal. Joe, thanks very much indeed for joining us and setting that out. Great. Thanks, Bronwyn. Okay, let's leave Brexit behind and switch our attention to COVID. There's going to be a public inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic, and it's meant to start by the spring. This week, we got a flavour of what that might sound like when two select committees, the Health and the Science and Technology Committees in the House of Commons, published their joint report. And they didn't, in the main part, make for very easy reading for the government. We're joined now by Tom Sass, who's one of our associate directors and leads our science and coronavirus work. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to have you with us. Tom, you've read every page of this report. What are the really important bits? I mean, I think it is an important report. It's the most comprehensive and sort of high profile verdict that we've got on the UK's pandemic experience so far. In many ways, there's not a huge number of surprises in there. It confirms many of the criticisms that we've heard over the last 18 months, you know, the kind of costly delays to lockdowns. It goes particularly hard on the first lockdown huge mistake in releasing people into care homes, failure of test and trace, muddled communications. It sets all of those out in in painstaking detail. I would say it's definitely not the final word on this. You know, it's a report that reflects both the kind of strengths and weaknesses of a sort of select committee process. You had two very sort of powerful former senior ministers as chairing this this inquiry. It had to be agreed line by line by by their committees. So it kind of, you know, it, it comes to some sort of vague wording on, on some issues. But I think it will be important in framing the debate as we head towards that public inquiry. And were there any surprises? Yeah, well, I think there were surprises. So for me, the biggest was that actually it, it, it focuses an awful lot on that initial lockdown decision in March. And you get a lot of discussion about the particular bits of advice that went into that, you know, what ministers were considering, what was known, what was not known. What we don't get much of actually is a consideration of the mistakes that came after so it's you get a very brief paragraph on the September circuit breaker and the, they sort of decide that it's impossible to know whether that it was right or wrong to reject that. And then actually, I think even more crucially, on the sort of November and December decisions, the report gives a very charitable sort of account to the government where they say, well, we couldn't have known about the, the Kent variant, which we only knew about in in mid-December and therefore, you know, perhaps we'll, we'll let them off the hook on that one. I mean, I think actually, if you look, if you think back to that period, a lot of people were saying that the government was taking a very reckless path well before we knew exactly what was causing this surge in cases. And of course, Boris Johnson sort of boxed himself in by committing to sort of save Christmas before we knew what the impact of, of the November lockdown would be. This is all going way into the, the history books for, for listeners. So I think there are some surprises in areas where they're perhaps a little bit charitable to the government. The other thing which I picked out and sort of a bit of a bone to pick, I suppose, is th- they make an awful lot of this accusation of groupthink. This was, of course, um, came partly from the, the marathon Dominic Cummings testimony. And I think it's it's sort of fine as an explanation for some parts of where the decision making failed. But it sort of misses the bigger role of ministers, actually, in bringing together different forms of advice, challenging advice, making sure that they have people around them who can give them hard truth. So I think, you know, there there were some really strong points in the report, but some other bits that actually future work needs to pick up more. And just one more point on this. You were the co-author of one of our reports on scientific advice to government. 
how did you feel the committees dealt with that specifically, that the whether the government was right to take the scientific advice, whether the scientific advice was right in itself? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I think they come out pretty critically on the sort of role of scientists. And I think some parts of the media will probably pick this up as the scientific advice was wrong and we need to sort of go and, and blame the scientists, in particular on the first lockdown decision. The, the committee report actually says it was astonishing that SAGE did not recommend a full lockdown earlier. Now, as I say, I think, you know, certainly most scientists who were involved would admit that they've got lessons to learn about that. They were not sort of, you know, they were perhaps a bit too cautious in interpreting evidence. They didn't look enough at what was going on abroad. But I think there's a bit of a risk of placing too much blame on the advice and not enough blame, perhaps, on on the decision makers themselves. Adam, do you think this report, which got a big response, is it a problem for the government? I think if we consider that question in terms of public opinion, my sort of theory would be not that much of a problem at all. I, I think with general public opinion has already factored in these mistakes, whether it be uh, the timing of lockdowns, the catastrophe around care homes, the confusing messaging, the sort of shambles that was um, Christmas. These things were all generally well known and, and, and I think have been factored in. And the government's reputation and and popularity has been redeemed by the vaccine rollout. I don't think this report in that sense didn't sort of reveal any bombshells that we didn't know already. In the immediate sense, I, I don't think it's a massive problem for government. But as as the point was made that this is just one of um, several sort of reports which are coming down the line, the inquiry will happen eventually. Perhaps in the longer term, that inquiry, whatever it produces, will be incredibly damaging for the Conservative brand perhaps not this particular Conservative government, but perhaps the Conservative Party brand going forward. But but in the shorter term, I even though the headlines are clearly um, very negative and, and damning and depressing, I, I don't think it will do that much damage to this particular government. Thanks for that. And Jill, one of the points that we've made all the way through is the importance of being prepared for the next crisis. Do you think that lessons have been learned? And did you see anything in this report that suggests they have been? Well, I think the report does highlight, uh, and I thought this was an interesting thing, the sort of running down of central capacity for preparedness uh, in terms of civil contingencies, secretariat, and the fact that that didn't really seem to have a role in ensuring that departments were prepared. So if um, ministers beyond sort of, you know, brushing the report off and trying to move on, do actually take time to read it and think about what they do next, then I would expect one of the things that they would be doing is looking more seriously at how do we actually make sure that we are resilient enough to cope with future crises. But I think, uh, you know, I think Adam is right that it is rather amazing that a report that describes one of the sort of biggest public health failures ever is a sort of almost a one-day news story released when parliament wasn't sitting and ministers seem to move on. And Tom mentioned that, you know, two conservative former secretaries of state who were the chairs, I think they might have been uh, not just letting their colleagues off a bit too lightly on the March decisions, but also this idea that they made a lot of mistakes, but those were sort of redeemed through the vaccine rollout. The vaccine rollout was a big success, but I don't think you 
use that to say that that sort of wipes out earlier errors. <laughs> you, know, you can do one thing right, but you did do some other things really quite badly wrong. And obviously this doesn't look at things like it's very much focused on the NHS and the public health response rather than the sort of wider things you've spoken about quite a lot, Bronwyn, in terms of what went on in schools and all of that, which was also, if you look at some of the longer term damage, clearly it was very important to be looked at and will be, we assume, in a future public inquiry as opposed to this narrower exercise by Jeremy Hunt and Greg Clark. Well, let me just pick up that point. And Tom, what's going to be different about the public inquiry? Well, of course, you know, there will be an independent chair who will have a a somewhat different focus to the, the chairs of this inquiry. It will have a lot more resources. It will run for a lot longer. It will hear testimony from a wider range of people. I mean, one of the interesting things with this inquiry, it did get a lot of the key players, Patrick Valance, Chris Whitty, Dominic Cummings and co, Dido Harding, but you also got their particular accounts of how they wanted to frame the way that they behaved through this crisis. I think the, the public inquiry will hear from officials. It will hear from others who were sort of involved. You know, you'll sort of get a wider range of evidence. And of course, the other thing it will be able to do is to compel the release of evidence. So actually to go to the document trail and get a stronger sense of, of what's known then. There is an interesting question about how the government responds to all of this, which is which is what Adam brought up there. I agree that a lot of this is priced in. There's some interesting research that's been done, which says actually a lot of voters treat the kind of way governments respond to COVID. I mean, they treat COVID almost as this natural event and they don't really blame politicians for the impacts of it too much. But I think there'd perhaps be a mistake for Boris Johnson to think that he can just think, you know, people want to move on and they don't want to sort of examine this. I thought actually Steve Barkley, when he came out on the press on this was a bit tone deaf in kind of just saying we followed the advice and refusing to apologise. So I think there will be a question about how the government responds. Well, thanks very much indeed. And we'll, we'll, I'm sure, come back to this before the inquiry starts, whenever that is. That's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Tom Sass and Joe Marshall, and especially to Adam Payne. Thanks for joining us. If you like this podcast, then check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, We've got a fascinating net zero themed episode with a panel, including the Prime Minister's COP26 spokesperson, Allegra Stratton, and Gavin Barwell, who we mentioned earlier, dropped into the IFG for an in-conversation event about his time as Theresa May's chief of staff. You can listen to all our podcasts at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And of course, please do leave us a review. And you can find more of our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've got a couple of great reports out next week to keep an eye out for. Until then, this episode of Inside Briefing is done. Unlike Brexit, see you next week. Bye.